I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. Aretha Franklin was an American institution through five decades, one of that handful of megastars we thought we knew, but we were wrong. We knew the rights-minded daughter of the radio preacher from Detroit who walked the fine line between church gospel and secular soul music and had a hundred danceable hits on both sides of that line. She sang opera too, something for Pavarotti no less, and she sang My Country Tis of Thee at Barack Obama's inauguration. But now, in the year after her death, a movie comes to the surface that feels like revelation. It's Aretha at age 29, live with a church choir, coming home to the songs of her girlhood. She is making what would be the most popular album of her life, Amazing Grace. But we're hearing her differently because we can see her, a performing artist looking more like a prophet in her own right. Wow, well, people will be talking about this for a long time, I think. Ed Pavlich is a poet and novelist at the University of Georgia, a student of African-American literature and arts across the board. What those folks created in that church on those nights as a kind of a celebration of, almost an apotheosis of the tradition itself, the tradition of black spiritual song, the tradition of black spiritual singing and musicianship. It's just at its absolute peak of its power in those nights and I hope the film kind of gets us back closer to that again. I think we can all use that. On two nights in January 1972, with the gospel pioneer James Cleveland at the piano and his gospel choir in the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, Aretha Franklin made gospel music's all-time hit. Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records wanted a film record of it and Hollywood's Sidney Pollack shot it with four cameras from 40 angles. It's Ed Pavlich's point that seeing it, finally, is another kind of believing and hearing. The songs from the Amazing Grace album were classics, you know, and we all, I was born in 66, so I was a little kid when that was all coming about. But growing up through the years, the recordings of Precious Memory and How I Got Over and Mary Don't You Weep are, are classics of black radio. But we had never seen it, you know, we had never actually watched Aretha and the choir and James Cleveland and Alexander Hamilton leading the choir and the, and the audience, the, the church, as it were, in that room at that time. We had never seen any of that. And I just, I have to say, you know, that as a person who, who really lives his life pretty close to this music, to finally see it was an experience I just, I can't quite get over it even now. It's been months now. And I've watched that movie dozens of times. I'd like to say good evening to everybody. We'd like to thank you for coming tonight to the first religious recording session of The Lady Soul, Miss Aretha Franklin. In terms of stuff you, you wouldn't have known what was going on. Right. Uh, or expressions. For Aretha's part, you know, she's introduced. She walks down the aisle in her robes. Two nights, two different robes. She walks down. And Aretha wasn't 
the most demonstrative performer in any venue. You know, she would address the audience, but she'd pretty much get up there and sing the songs. You know, she'd blow the roof off, of course, as a singer, but she wasn't a theatrical performer in that way. And even less so in the church, you know. And, and part of watching Aretha in Amazing Grace, the film, is to realize, for all the talk of bridging the division between the sacred and secular, it's very clear in this film that she really does feel like she's in a, a church, and that means something very, very different for her. This is not a concert. This is a service. You know, the other thing that strikes me right off is the heat, the sweat. Aretha's, I say, you know, Aretha's sweating like LeBron James in that church. I mean, she, the sweat is pouring off of her. Because for one thing, she, I think it's true that she wouldn't allow air conditioning in, in the venues that she performed and because she was worried about how it uh, affected her voice. And it's very moving to see her, you know, just sweating with this music in that way. It's a very touching moment when her father comes and towels her yes. whole face and head. It's yes. Quite sweet. <laughs> yes. Well, um, sweet and paternal and, you know, with care for his daughter for sure. Part of what this movie kind of presents to people is a very moving and complex but also kind of beguiling tangle of what a spiritual performance really is, you know, because the inspiration is absolutely real and the spirit in these performers is flesh. And so part of what you see in the film is, is a dimension of theatricality, probably least so with Aretha, but around her. I mean, Alexander Hamilton is the choir director, and he's absolutely, you know, I mean, he's laying it on pretty thick there. I mean, he's dancing with the choir back there, and he, he's so animated, and it's a beautiful thing to see. But it is there, you know, for the camera. And James Cleveland, too. He plays this kind of comic relief almost in the film. He plays an awkward performer moving back and forth. But that's also part of the act in a certain way. One tends to think that James Cleveland, in a dimension sitting right beside what you can see, is absolutely in control of every single syllable going on in that pulpit on that stage. That's quite a wonder to behold, for sure. And, you know, in Cleveland, um, in the film several times, it's wonderful that they kept this in the footage. He says, look, you know, if the camera comes at you, you know, get in on it. He says, you know, do your thing when, when you get your chance. He's, I hope you don't think, you know, poorly of me for getting my grind on or whatever he says wherever I see them. Don't be bashful when the camera comes your way. We don't know if it'll get back again. So while it's coming your way, Get in on it, all right? <laughs> I don't want you to feel too bad at me if you see me moving around. Wherever I see him grinding, that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> you put a wonderful stress on Baldwin in Senegal at a place where black slaves were put on shipboard to the Middle Passage. He describes it. Is the shore of speechlessness. What in the world could anybody have said in that moment? And that this music, in some fashion, comes out of that silence. 
Well, there it is. And, and, and like I say, I, I told someone that I, I thought watching, my first reaction to watching the film Amazing Grace, it was like Hubble telescope images into the origins of the universe, you know, in the way that I think through this performance, but in all, in all of the black spiritual tradition and song, my strong sense is that one gets a kind of glimpse into the origins of black speech, you know, of, of the kind of language that it took to accompany experience here, black experience in North America, which, like Baldwin is saying, you know, when he, he goes to West Africa to kind of investigate his own origins, and he gets to the coast and looks westward over the Atlantic thinking, there's just no words for this. You know, when folks made these trips, they were, they were embarking into an experience which, to say it in the most mild terms, no language existing at that time could cover, could describe. And so you had people transported into a situation that Baldwin describes as speechlessness, which isn't the whole story, but I think allows us to imagine a dimension, a kind of volcanic need for creativity, for molten action in language, in real time, by people under pressure. And I think it's indexed and cataloged in the tradition of, of black song, as well as in the tradition of, of, of black gesture, you know, and black laughter. And probably, I think, nowhere more copiously and powerfully indexed than in those couple hours there in those churches. Because those songs, you know, Mary Don't You Weep, and those songs like that, they do go back centuries. Pick a moment, Ed, in, that, in the movie where Aretha may be humming, she may be howling, she may be almost silent, she may be eyes closed, waiting. Yeah, well, I think of the time, the, 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 the moment in Precious Memories, which is an incredible duet that she does with James Cleveland. They pass back and forth their voices, and James Cleveland is playing the piano to accompany the thing, and the choir's in back of them at Alexander Hamilton's direction, just erupting and then whispering. So that performance of Precious Memories is a classic, and, and, and many, many gospel, gospel lovers know, know that performance particularly. But there's a moment where, where she's saying, um, Jesus whispers, and the chorus is just thundering behind her. And then it goes away, and she continues, Child, I'll be with you. And just, uh, I don't know, you know, it's, it's hard to really put into prose, but it gets to the existential role of Jesus, of Christ, of that energy in, in black speech, in black life. That speaks to, you know, in a way, the deepest need of, of what it's all about. And you don't need a PhD, you don't need Pavlich lecturing you to get there. Maritha gets you there with breath and sweat, you know, and a little organ behind her.
That was Ed Pavlich. Coming up, when Aretha comes to her version of the classic, Mary Don't You Weep, you can feel she is reenacting a biblical miracle. Wesley Morris of the New York Times takes us through it. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. Arts critic Wesley Morris wrote the New York Times obituary essay on Aretha Franklin last August. He wondered if we'd taken her for granted, that in failing to make her president, a saint, or her own country, we still might not have paid her enough respect. She is the accepted metric by which every other singer on the planet, or at least in the English-speaking world, is measured by. There are lots of great singers who sound nothing like Aretha Franklin, but the thing that we're looking for in greatness is the possibility (laughs) that somebody might sound even 50% as great as she did. Who said it better than Mary J. Blige? She said, Aretha is a gift from God. There is no one who can touch her. She is the reason women want to sing. Yeah, that sounds right to me. (laughs) That sounds exactly right to me. And if you hear Mary J. Blige sing, you know that the spirit she is catching is the Aretha spirit in so many ways. And then comes this movie. Seeing is believing in a different sort of way. How do you describe that? I mean, on the one hand, it's going to church, right? Even though you're in a movie theater, if you're watching Amazing Grace, you're also in church. But, you know, it was revolutionary in the early 1970s to hear a recorded version of the most popular female singer in America going and singing gospel songs, which is the thing that sort of got her to where she was in the first place. The precedent, I mean, there's so many precedents that are happening under that roof, right? You have this crew of white men paying great attention to the faces and emotions of black people and, you know, trying to get out of the ways of black people Mm. and being deferential and reverential. And if you watch the movie, there is a kind of awe in the moment from the filmmakers toward the choir and Aretha Franklin and to the congregation. You know, there's probably a cut of this movie that is all about night two and Mick Jagger shows up. There's a version of this movie that's got 20 shots of Mick Jagger just looking around and taking it all in. Mick Jagger is a background figure in this movie. I mean, rightly so. (laughs) But the way that this person who, you know, at this moment in time was at the height of his popularity, fame, and at the height of his artistic ingenuity as well, in thrall of this woman and this choir. All of the sort of, you know, aesthetically right reorientation of molecules to be where they ought to be, (laughs) Mm. you know, around this woman and these people sitting behind her, accompanying her on these songs. Speak of that moment, 1972. On the chart, you can see that as the end of the 60s, Attica especially, the beginning of an era of mass incarceration, something was happening and the movement feeling around civil rights was fading. Reckon all that. 
she was somebody who, by the late 1960s and early 70s, was thinking about how to respond to to the moment, right? I mean, when this movie was made, she had a lot of bad news in her life. You know, her father was sick. Clara Ward was was sick. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. You know, Robert Kennedy was dead. I mean, there had just been a lot of tragedy that had gone before this event or was happening during it. But also during that early 70s period, I mean, she was bringing an explicit blackness into her music and a sense of pride and joy and enthusiasm and black self-belief into her songwriting and into her arranging. This is the period of, of Young, Gifted, and Black, for instance. You know, which is an album that has a lot of not just love songs. There are songs on this album that are like essentially uplift oriented. And I think that she wanted to try to find a way to bring the moment into her music as opposed to just simply relying on, you know, the strength of her blackness and her relationship to gospel Mm. and blues. But to sort of be as consciously black as other black people were in the moment, too. Wesley Morris, take us through that powerful Mary, Don't You Weep, a song that so many people had recorded. I've never heard it like this. No, I mean, nobody had ever heard it like this. And at some point, the beauty and the genius of the arrangement and the reason it's so different from, say, the Inez Andrews version, which is very famous. I said, Mary, That and the Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers version. Pharaoh's army already got drowned. Mary, don't you keep on singing? Oh, Mary. Those are the two iconic, I would say, like the two greatest versions of this song that we had heard up to this point. But this was the first one to really capture the amazement and euphoria and miraculousness of the biblical event. It begins with this great vamp where the choir just sort of repeats, Whoa, whoa, Mary. That vamp just sort of leads. You know, the choir sort of processionally brings her forward. And then she begins to sing the song of, of Lazarus. I'm going to get the details of the biblical story wrong because, (laughs) but basically, you know, his sister is, you know, mourning the death of of Lazarus. Her brother, yes. Her brother, right. Mary of Bethany. Right. And so really she is storytelling this biblical event. Yes. And she leans all the way into it. We're going to review this. Review the story of two sisters. They had a brother. Named Lazarus. And she's personifying the miracle, right? It's some of the best singing she's ever done. That my, 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 
that run of mice. Other people think this too. I think Billy Preston is on the record as having said this too. But like, that is one of the greatest moments of singing in recorded history, period. Mm. I think the whole song is. But that moment, and then when she screams Lazarus, there are two backup singers basically, one of whom I'm pretty sure is her sister Carolyn, create this sound of wooziness and weakness, but it's in harmony, so it has a kind of power anyway. I mean, it's just a phenomenal performance by all involved. It was a very considered decision here on her part to come home, in a way, to church music, the sounds of her girlhood. And to me, that is inexplicably powerful in the end. It is a religious testimony. And it's not just catching the spirit, which we do musically, but it's also feeling a divine energy in all of us as you watch that movie. Yeah. I mean, I also think that, you know, just on a more superficial level, (laughs) I think she also just had something that she wanted to prove, too. There was a lot of talk among Black religious people about her having left the church Hmm. and her having become famous at the expense of her gospel roots. Hmm. And that was offensive to her because she felt like well, what are you talking about? Like, I still went to church. I still sing gospel music. I still know all the songs. So you're saying that because I'm recording more secular music, like I don't have a relationship to the church? So I think that, you know, she definitely, like there's an aspect of her approach to this project that really is like, listen, 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 listen. No, just no, that's not true. I will show you how not true that is. Just come on Saturday night, (laughs) and you'll hear how how divine I sound. I mean, I don't care how long I go without, like, quote, being in the church, unquote. The church is in me, and it never left, and it never will leave. And it didn't. It never left. That was Wesley Morris, the movie and arts critic at the New York Times. You hear him, too, on the podcast Still Processing. Aretha's father, the minister C.L. Franklin of Detroit, spoke in the church in Los Angeles on the second night. It took me all the way back to the living room at home when she was six and seven years of age. It took me back to about 11 when she started traveling with me on the road, singing gospel. I saw you crying and I saw you responding, but I was just about to bust wide open. 
I say with pride that Aretha is not only my daughter, Aretha is just a stone singer. <laughs> C.L. Franklin himself was a whooping church singer and traveling preacher, strategically allied with Martin Luther King Jr. in the church and rights politics of the 1950s. It was his musically charged activist New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit that prepared his daughter, Aretha. Ed Pavlich has the backstory. C.L. Franklin met up with King in the 50s and befriended King and partnered with King in a spiritual, religious, political mission, unlike many conservative Baptist preachers who, you know, leaned away from King's efforts. And, you know, also C.L. Franklin was the sharecropper's son and really came up from rural Mississippi you know, on the rough side of the mountain, as it said in the song. So, so Aretha grew up in a in a house in a church that was politically mobilized, that was absolutely a center for black political figures as well as cultural figures, gospel figures such as Mahalia Jackson, Claire Ward were were almost like mother figures to Aretha. I mean, almost literally so as well as popular performers like Dinah Washington and people like that, Ray Charles, T-Bone Walker, people like that, were also very, very good friends with her father. And her father was in ways remarkable among Baptist preachers for his absolute refusal to kind of obey the secular, sacred boundary. Mahalia Jackson, of course, famously wouldn't sing outside sacred environs, only in Newport a couple times with Duke Ellington, but mostly she turned down offers to sing in Vegas or, or nightclubs and things like that, you know. And so there's a historic line between the sacred and secular there. And, and C.L. Franklin, Aretha's father, was absolutely radical in his disavowal of that boundary. He, he would say, in terms of music, he would say, any song that comes out of a black singer's mouth is sacred to me. And, you know, he, he counted at Bobby Blue Bland and, you know, blues singers such as that as, as good personal friends of his. They would be in the church with him in the, in the front rows. In 1972, Aretha has crossed the line out of the church, and she's coming back. That's a big deal. Aretha recorded gospel songs in two churches, one in Oakland, one at home in Detroit, in 1956 as a 14-year-old, and there were hit recordings in the gospel world. When she was 18, her father brought her to Columbia Records. They signed her up there, and she worked with them for five or six years with some sporadic success. And then they came to Atlantic Records. She became the sole superstar that she she became. And then in 1972, they walked back to the church. And I don't, I'm not clear on exactly the reason why. People at Atlantic thought it might be a good idea. People also wondered whether it was a good idea because they didn't know 
if that return was really possible. Famous gospel singers who had left to do secular music had tried to return to to sacred music and had been turned away by the audience. And famously, Sam Cooke in Chicago was jeered at and ridiculed on the stage trying to do a gospel show with the Soul Stirrers again after having had his popular successes. People were calling at him to get off the stage, you know, this sinner, what is he doing in here? So this was a decade later, but, but people worried. James Cleveland seemed to say that she was making a statement in coming back to the, the sacred songs of her childhood. James Cleveland himself remained in the church for the most part, yeah. I mean, he was a, a gospel performer as well as a composer of many, many, many songs and famously the director of incredible choirs in the modern gospel style or idiom. And so he clearly, you know, had an interest in, in welcoming her back because here you have a kind of a reuniting of a gospel superstar in James Cleveland and a secular soul superstar in, in Aretha Franklin, a kind of dream team arrangement. I mean, James Cleveland is over the moon. He's, he's walking on air. He's so thrilled to have her back. Tonight, I want you to relax and enjoy one of the greatest sounds in the world, and that's the sound of gospel. And if I seem a little misty, it's just because I'm happy. For us, this is a dream come true. They had known each other as children, too, the two of them, of course. So, so it is really a, a literal kind of, uh, you know, a reunion. And you can hear that. What would James Baldwin have made of that concert in 72 in the church? In March of 1968, just weeks before King was shot, you know, Baldwin wrote his brother and sister and said, the way she sings is the way I want to write. Wow. Yeah, so a verbatim, that's what he wrote. I don't think in the late 60s he was quite able to write that way yet. Baldwin says, what I hear in Aretha's voice is a person who can address the people and the person in the same utterance, the collective and the individual, the private and the political. Ed Pavlich's new novel is about a cultural border jumper a lot like himself. It's called Another Kind of Madness. Coming up, we're on the phone with Reverend William Barber on the Poor People's Campaign bus heading through North and South Carolina this week. He has a blessing and something more from Aretha Franklin. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Shana Redmond is the cultural scholar, a singer herself, and a musicologist at UCLA who has studied the Aretha effects minutely, the emotional and spiritual effects on her listeners, and the musical means of delivering them. Her big book on the subject is Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora. 
There are so many ways that Aretha was significant, crucial even to the unfolding politics of the moments in which she performed. And she had such a long career that it's very easy actually to think about her as initiating these sea changes, certainly participating in them, most concretely thinking about her role in the unfolding consciousness around gender equality, mm-hmm. um, and more specifically using the language of feminism. You know, as someone who's concerned very integrally with the intersectional elements of people's identities, how gender and race and class and all of these pieces fit together, Aretha Franklin is an amazing subject. I mean, it's very telling that the song Respect now might be understood by some members of the mainstream as her song rather than Otis Redding's song. So she takes this song and in her ability to kind of control the narrative of requests that she's making of her partner Mm. inspired all of the listeners to actually take some of that power into their own homes, into their own relationships, into their own workplaces, no doubt, to say that, no, I deserve all of these things I'm requesting of you. This is common decency. And to think about a black woman as being the person who gave people the right, gave people permission to go seek those best opportunities within their relationships, I think is really compelling. Go as close into the words as you want, Shana, that first opening line, what you want, baby, I got it, is already announcing that she knows her value. She doesn't actually need you to tell her how great she is. She's going to tell you because she's very solidly in her body, in her sense of self. Because I do think this is an opportunity for her to establish a certain amount of authority for herself with her audiences, knowing that this song, having been popularized first by a male singer, by the icon Otis Redding, For her to now adopt this song and to move it forward, I think she had to come out with a certain amount of bravado of her own. And she absolutely held that throughout the song. listening to the timbre, the textures, the range not just of pitches but of sounds that come out of Aretha's voice. How's to account for it, much less hear it all? She has such an amazing, amazing range, not just along the notational scale from low to high, but also thinking about the emotional intensity in her voices, Mm. the kinds of trills and melismas that she's able to bring to her voice. Her vibrato is amazing, her breath control, her diction, the way she can run certain words together or articulate them very distinctly as a means of making a certain point. Where she takes a breath matters, Mm. right? All of the phrasing that comes along with the songs as she performs them, and they're going to be different. And this is in part what makes the Amazing Grace album and film so interesting is that to have a recording of her having performed live is a very unique opportunity 
because so often we're getting the kind of sanitized version of our artists when we receive their musics having recorded in the studio. But now to see her on film in real time performing these songs, you get that much more of a sense of how fantastic and phenomenal a performer she was. Apply your fine ear, Shana, to what she's doing in that Marvin Gaye song, Holy, Holy. That is W-H-O-L-L-Y, H-O-L-Y. Holy, Holy. This is, again, an opportunity to really read Aretha's genius because she's able, again, to pick up the song of another artist, another iconic male soul artist, which is to say that she was unafraid of taking these songs that were already popular, already recognizable, and by these phenomenal soul artists and bring that music into the church. Ladies and gentlemen, Aretha Franklin, Southern California Choir, Holy Holy. She was a crossover artist who never changed styles. Mm -hmm. She was able to actually bring the church, carry the church with her wherever she went. And in the case of Holy Holy and the performance in Los Angeles on the Amazing Grace album, she's literally bringing that secular song into the church, but was able to carry it elsewhere with her beyond that space as well. To hear her rendition of that song is really a study in counterpoint, in thinking about her relationship to other voices, because you have this small ensemble of women who are providing kind of this airy, holy, holy that kind of circulates and hovers around her voice as she's leading them into various tonal changes. very much like a preacher who's working in an antiphonal style, a call and response style where she'll announce a line and this small ensemble of higher pitched voices would follow her and just kind of envelop her voice as she's leading them through these various changes. She's able to command a certain type of leadership style that is every bit as much important for that historical moment as the leadership style that we might see from people who are leading marches or protests or sit-ins, right? That she's able to, from her podium, do a similar thing as some of those people whom she supported in the civil rights struggle. And Mm -hmm. it's really amazing to see her take that up at the podium of this church in Los Angeles with Reverend Cleveland accompanying her, but her as the star, as the one who's fully in 
in charge of what's happening around her. But this holy, holy moment where she is able to bring this incredible blues sensibility to her vocal practice and performance. She's working as kind of a blues preacher and being able to bend her notes, to force some of them out, but also to retreat. There's a moment where she pulls back from the microphone. Her voice just gets distant, like she's fading slowly into the background. And then she comes back to us for the last three minutes. And she's able to kind of keep that back and forth with the audience through her volume, through her pitch, the relationship to the other singers. And it's just a very ethereal experience in the listening. How do you connect all the dots of black female voices Mm -hmm. from Aretha to Beyonce? We think of all these words, the priestess of soul, Nina Simone, the queen of soul, Aretha Franklin, the divine Sarah Vaughan back in the day from a church in Newark. Is there a word sort of close to prophetess for this role the women are playing? I think there should be. I think there should be a word like a prophetess or even a prophet. A seer is another word that I often use. One of the words that's quite often used for male artists and very rarely for female artists is genius, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is, is one of the words in the air, but is still not quite getting at what I would like to think that they're able to accomplish or that they have accomplished for us. Shana Redmond, you've written about Paul Robeson and others making the sound of solidarity. How does that map onto Aretha Franklin in a Los Angeles church near Watts in 1972. Aretha Franklin is someone who was able to construct new publics. And this is part of what I was arguing in my book with Nina Simone, Paul Robeson, all of these other performers who radically changed the way that we would listen and identify in the 20th century is that they were able to develop new means by which people could understand their relationship to each other. And Aretha Franklin was absolutely one of these people. And that performance in Watts in 1972, as the city has faced a tremendous rebellion, as the city is trying to find itself in relationship to one another, the black community figuring out how to grow from the wake of civil rights legislation, the rest of the city trying to understand its relationship to this newly and differently vocal black community in Los Angeles, she becomes another ground zero, another opportunity for people to think about how they exist alongside each other. And that it happened in a black church, I think matters tremendously having come off of that civil rights decade or 15 years of the mid to late 1950s through the 1960s and thinking about the role of organized religion in black protest to have it then happen there in 1972 and led by a woman, right? is to give us a different sensibility about then how we might proceed. 
How do we re-envision our churches as places of protest? How do we re-envision what leadership looks like, but also how it sounds? Might it be a musician? Might it be someone who's able to actually command their audiences and their listening public in a different type of way? Not only did she provide a feminist anthem, not only did she set the bar for a long career, but she did so in her own name, always, and without the accompaniment or consent of a male public. And I think that that type of inheritance matters in the contemporary moment, the ways in which young female artists always aspire toward people like Aretha because those are the types of careers that matter. Those are the types of careers that go down in history as having made a fundamental difference in how we now understand the world around us. Shana Redmond is professor of musicology and African-American studies at UCLA. The Reverend William Barber is the pastor on the road from Goldsboro, North Carolina. His mission this year and last has been to revive a sanctified poor people's campaign of the sort Dr. King envisioned when he was assassinated in 1968. Reverend Barber is the only one of our guests this hour who knew Aretha Franklin well and bonded with her goals in spirit on earth. I asked him to bring the story home as he might in church. The amazing thing about Amazing Grace is when Rita sings it, it is the gospel that I say we need to hear today. Amazing Grace. First of all, the fact that she's singing not just grace, but this amazing grace, something that you cannot really put your hands or your mind around. That song says, I once was lost. It, so it owns lost people can get lost, lost in hate, lost in sadness, lost in despair, lost in the midst of turmoil. You can own that because there is something beyond. There's another sphere. There's another source. But then that song also says through. When Rita sings that, she worries the line. You don't just sing the note. You hang around the notes so the people's ears are turned into eyes. She'll say through, and then she'll say it again. And She'll say through. It's almost like she's trying to find the right tone, the right note to make us understand the depth of saying through. In other words, we faced a lot of things, but we went through them. And she doesn't rush past that, right? She worries that note or worries the line. And as she's worrying the line, you can hear the people responding. And so as people are responding, unlike some Western music where you just go to the next note, she doesn't. I mean, anywhere you go, if you sing Amazing Grace, yes. you don't have to sing it right. You can just start the first note and people will be with you and people will get emotional because the song walks you through life 
Amazing grace the first line. Through many dangers, towards the stairs. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far when we've been there 10,000 years. It actually is a hymn that walks us through life. Hmm. It walks us through loneliness. It walks us through what it means to languish in pain. And then it walks us right on through to the liberty of, of eternal life. And Aretha, what she brought to that, the way she worried the line is also instructive because it's the way we ought to worry people when we protest. We ought not just go one time and leave. When it comes to justice, we ought to worry politicians. We ought to worry society. In other words, we ought to keep on holding the note of justice, love, and righteousness until, in fact, things change. And so as you listen to this, don't just hear with your ears of your head. Hear with the ears of your soul, your ears of your heart. And if you feel like it right where you are, let Aretha take you to church. Let her take you to transformation. Let her remind you of this amazing grace that is available to all of us and be blessed in a mighty and powerful way. We need to sing now. We need to sing now. And let that singing be a part of the rhythm of our movement in this moment. Beautifully said, Reverend William Barber. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ed Pavlich. Thank you, Wesley Morris, Shana Redmond, and Reverend William Barber. That film, Amazing Grace, is showing now in about 200 theaters around this country. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, with help from the engineer Matt Lissette, Rebecca Panovka, and the artist Susan Coyne. Mary McGrath is our secular saint. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. Can't you sing? That's it, folks.